Hi everyone, hope you're all doing well. Welcome back to Midday with Doug DeVries. As always, I'm your host, Doug DeVries. Folks, in light of Hispanic Heritage Month being this month and being Hispanic myself, I wanted to, to do something special and dedicate this episode to my grandparents, Dolores and Fabian. Today's guest is an incredibly accomplished Mexican-American whose story epitomizes achieving the American dream. We're incredibly fortunate to have Mr. Jose Hernandez, retired NASA astronaut, with us on the show today. Coincidentally, he's also the father of Julio Hernandez, my very close friend, who was on the show a few months ago when I was first starting out. On that note, if you guys haven't taken a listen to the episode titled Astronaut Talk with Julio, I'd highly encourage you to do so. It was a great episode. I've gotten tons of positive things said about it. And some of the things that Julio and I talked about when it came to family are actually continued upon in this episode with his dad, Jose. In this episode, Jose and I talk about looking back on the trajectory that life has for us and seeing life come full circle when you look at all that you've accomplished. We talked about becoming a role model and setting the trend for bigger things in your family and the importance of enjoying the journey to achieving your goal because, quite frankly, you'll never get that time back. To close out the show, we talked about what it feels like to see your kid become a go-getter just like you and want to follow in your footsteps too. Without further ado, folks, we're going to go ahead and get into this show with Mr. Hernandez. But before we do that, I want to make a correction to something that I said last week. My coupon code for Chassis Man Care for Down There is not Doug 2 for 20. It's Doug 20 for 2. That's D-O-U-G. Two zero, F O R two. So, go to chassisformen.com, pick up yourself some of their premium body powders to support better man care for down there. Use that coupon code Doug twenty for two. Get yourself twenty percent off of your purchase, and free shipping as well, and help to support the show. But seriously, guys, without further ado, I'm excited to present to you. This interview that I had with Mr. Jose Hernandez, retired NASA astronaut. How about a hey, Mr. Hernandez, how are you? I am doing good, Doug. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. You look like Julio. I know that's obviously obvious, but oh my gosh, you can see it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They say, they, they say we do a little bit. Not a lot, but yeah. No, yeah. How are you doing, though? You doing well? I'm doing well. That's great. His mannerisms are probably the same as mine, but yeah. <laughs> like father, like son, huh? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm glad that we got to do this interview because... You know, I recently graduated from Purdue, so I wasn't able to attend the uh, the event that you spoke at. So I was a little bit bummed yeah. about that. But I think this is pretty cool that we get to do our own little one on one. So I'm really appreciative of it, by the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. In light of Hispanic Heritage Month here, I mean, it's crazy that you are where you are today. I don't think anybody in any position in any point in life can predict where they are, you know, maybe five days from now or five years from now or 50 years from now. You got to go to space. You were the first man to use the Spanish the Spanish language in space. Kind of just tell me 
about, you know, your, your motivations and what kind of carried you through those hard times? You know, there's been other Hispanic Americans that have been astronauts, but they've been like third, fourth generation type. I'm really the first, first generation whose parents are, are from, uh, no kidding, from uh, Latin America, in Mexico in my case. And uh, yeah, I'm also the first migrant farm worker because I worked as a farm worker. And, and also, you know, the very first one who actually had the privilege of tweeting in Spanish uh, from space, which was pretty cool. I have that dubious honor. And, uh, you know, I always, always wanted to be an astronaut ever since I was 10 years old. And, and that dream just never went away. I didn't know any better. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. I didn't think about it. I just went ahead and did it and just went about my way of, uh, of trying to achieve that goal. With your family, you know, coming from, like you said, being migrant farm workers, when they saw you going to do your, your mission, it was on the, I think it was the STS-28, right? Or am I butchering? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. When they saw you going to do that and you called them and you kind of just said, hey, like, I won't be able to pick up the phone. I'm going to be busy in space. What kind of things are running through their mind, huh? Well, they're, uh, <clears throat> they're obviously very proud. Uh, you know, my parents are still around and very healthy. Uh, it's all due to that good working in the fields, uh, open air. And so they're very healthy. So they were there along with my wife and my kids, including my son, Julio. They were there witnessing the launch live. And, um, and so I could only imagine, you know, the pride they, they must have been feeling in a sense that, you know, they only have a second grade education, but yet they were wise enough to uh, give us an environment <clears throat> that allowed us to flourish and do well in school. I mean, they couldn't pay tuition or those type of things, but they gave us a greater gift. And that was, uh, you know, establishing uh, good study habits uh, that my mom saw to it, that we did our homework right after we got back from school, those type of things, uh, setting the expectations. It wasn't, uh, I hope you go to college, it's when you go to college kind of thing. And so we were always uh, geared towards education. My parents didn't understand it, but they knew it was important and they always wanted the best for us. And there's only four of us in our family and all four of us went to college and graduated because of that. Gotcha. All the four of you in your family went to college and graduated. Did you have any like older cousins or anything? I mean, like, for example, my, my family on my mom's side where, you know, we still have relatives who are in Mexico, like it's big family. And I would say that like, uh, the ones around my mom's age are the ones who some of them went to college and then some of them also did not. But I mean, like for my grandfather, he came over here to work in the steel mills in the sixties from Mexico. He's from Monterey. And he had, you know, like a sixth grade education and my mom was the only one in their immediate family to go to college. And then I was the first grandchild to graduate from college. Did you have anybody in your family that you had kind of looked up to for educational aspirations? Or was it kind of just like, hey, we're, we're going to do this thing together? Yeah, it was more, uh, Doug, it was more of the fact that we were kind of like the trendsetters. We were the ones that were basically trailblazing the road so that uh, our younger cousins mm -hmm. uh, would say, hey, be like them kind of thing. And then so we were, we were uh, in the group of the oldest cousins and we kind of set the trail. The 
the other cousins that were as old as we were, um, you know, uh, didn't go to college. Certainly their parents, my uncles and aunts didn't go to college. We were the first ones opening up that new avenue, that new option, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, and luckily the younger cousins uh, sort of, you know, fell in line and started doing things on their own as well. So uh, so it was good to, to have, uh, you know, serve as role models to the immediate family back then because I thought it was very important. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that one, th I mean, obviously in all cultures, family is important, but I think that one thing that I've seen at least with my my Hispanic side of the family, is that family is just, it's it's key to everything. You can't do anything without people supporting you or being behind you. And the fact that, you know, they're they're always going to be there for you if you if you win, they're always going to be there for you lose. If it, They're always there, period. You got rejected 11 times before you got accepted on the 12th. And it, I think it was in like in a three-year period of your applications, right? So... On that 12th time, what kind of feeling did you have? And then, you know, what did your family feel for you too? Quite honestly, I thought when I finally got selected, you know, I, my reaction was it's about freaking time. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I, I just won a lottery and I got selected as an astronaut. I felt I had really, really earned it. And I thought I earned it years ago in this sense because I, I worked my tail off. And, and I, I'll tell you, um, you know, I always tell kids that, that um, you know, when you set goals for yourself in life, always have a plan B uh, because plan A may not work for you. I especially tell this to kids who aspire to have a plan A that's something like being a professional NFL player, NBA player, or soccer player, uh, because chances are they're not going to make it. So I always tell them, what's your plan B? Now, in my particular case, like uh, being an astronaut was my plan A, and chances are I wasn't going to make it, but my plan B was built into my plan A because I look at it and I said, okay, uh, and I would do this every year when I got rejected. I would tell myself this every year to console myself. I would say the mere fact that I want to be an astronaut motivated me to go to college get my engineering degree, get my graduate engineering degree. It motivated me to uh, become a pilot, a scuba diver, motivated me to learn a third language, which is Russian. And it motivated me to work in a, in a very premier research facility, Lawrence Livermore Lab. So I was having a great career. Um, and the track I was having, I was enjoying what I was doing. And so I would console myself. I said, look, coming as a migrant farm worker, uh, picking cucumbers, 50 cents a bucket to where I'm working at right now. I said, you know, that's a hell of a consolation prize. I said, I, you're not doing too bad. And so this is why I always tell folks is when you select your goal, your, your plan A, you got to make sure you enjoy the journey because, um, you know, that's about 90% of the time and effort. And if you're not enjoying the journey, because, uh, you know, some of us may stay in that journey and not move on to the other part. Uh, in my case, I if I didn't get selected as an astronaut, <coughs> I would have remained at Lawrence Livermore Lab and I would have been happy because I was enjoying the journey. But I'm telling folks, if you're not enjoying the journey, chances are you're picking the wrong, you have the wrong goal in mind. Uh, and, and you need to reassess it because uh, it's so important to join 
to to enjoy the uh, the journey because that's where the bulk of your time is going to be spent. And so that's that's the way I would uh, approach each rejection. Is I'd say, look, um, it's okay because what you're doing is also very important, and you're enjoying it. And then that's what I tell people, you know, because I don't want a kid to aspire to be an NFL player. He gets hurt, and now he's washing cars. I mean, he's got to do something better than that. And that's why I, I tell him, I said, make sure you're in college, get get your degree so that if things don't work out, if they work out, that's great. But if they don't work out, you got something to fall on. That's fantastic advice because as somebody who's gone through, and I'm sure that everybody who's listening as well could relate to it, there are times when you're, you know, so frustrated with the the place where you're at and the fact that you wanna be at the end already. You just like you for you, for example, you wanted to be an astronaut, you wanted to be in space already. For me, you know, I just wanted to graduate from college and be on my own and all the other stuff. But now that I'm looking on everything in retrospect, I just wish that I would have enjoyed some of my experiences and things in college or high school or even middle school and elementary school just a little bit more because I'm not going to get those back. Oh, you never get that back. No, I mean, it's, it's a crazy part. Yeah, that's the one thing you never get back is time. And, and so that's why I always say, you know, you got to enjoy what you're doing now. And create beautiful memories so that you never have any regrets. No, that's beautifully worded. No, exactly. I mean, just you'll always have time for things in the future, but it's just being mindful of what's going on in the present is just as important as the moment that you kind of like take that first sip of like a cold beer when you finally accomplish what it was that you were setting out for. On terms of, because you had mentioned the Lawrence Laboratory that you were at, you helped to design one of the first field mammograms, right? That's right. That's right. And, and again, it goes back to enjoying what you're doing. You know, some people ask me and a lot of people would expect me to say that when, when asked the question, what's your highlight of your professional career? A lot of people expect me to say, well, you know, hey, I was a NASA astronaut. I went to space. I was the flight engineer of STS-128 aboard Space Shuttle Discovery. But that's not my most proud professional moment. I think my most proud professional moment was along the journey of becoming an astronaut. And that was working at Lawrence Livermore Lab. You know, one of the first projects that, um, that I worked on at Lawrence Livermore Lab was uh, developing an X-ray laser, which was gonna be deployed up in space as a shield in case the Soviets attacked and launched their first nuclear attack. We had something to combat the rockets that, that will go exothermic and we could destroy them. And so we were designing and testing a high powered X-ray laser. And I wasn't too interested in the design of the laser itself. I was more interested in the fact that it was gonna be deployed up in space. So it's hardware up in space. I figured if I get involved in this project, NASA's gonna be interested in me because I'm, I have experience fielding equipment up in space. Uh, so that's the way I looked at it. Mm-hmm. And so I started, I started, um, I started um, working on it. And then the Soviet Union broke apart. So the big bad wolf went away. Mm-hmm. And, and so justification for a grandiose project, like the one we were working on, which was in the billions of dollars, yeah. um, went away. There's, you know, it, there's that weapon shield which was called uh, Star Wars Project, Strategic Defense Initiative, mm-hmm. was no longer needed because 
the Soviet Union broke apart. Now it was the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so so that project went away and there was over 200 of us working in that project. And my boss, basically everybody went off and looked for different jobs within the lab and they got them. Uh, but my boss asked me, hey, uh, why don't you hang back a while? We got money to close up things, but while we're closing up things, um, let's look at another application for the tools you develop. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, yes. He said, yeah, you developed a, um, I developed 3D X, uh, 3D uh, X-ray Monte Carlo uh, techniques that, that models the interaction of x-rays with materials mm -hmm. and i will be able to model it and predict how good of images uh would uh, uh would be produced on on on, on electronic um, detecting devices and um and he said why don't you hang on and we kind of felt like we had these nice tools and we had the answer to a question but we didn't know what the question was so we started doing literature searches in terms of what was the hot topics in that day and um, in that era. And the hot topics was uh, mammography, breast cancer. And, uh, and then we looked at current mammography technology and we quickly convinced ourselves that they were using 25 year old technology that they haven't updated it. In other words, you, know, you get the x-ray, you image the breast, and you got a radiograph on the bottom that then, then gets uh, developed mm -hmm. much like a picture does. And the radiologist puts the ra radiograph on a light table and interprets the image. That's what they were doing back then. And the, what I have developed was I had developed a way of optimizing and designing a new system starting with the X-ray tube, optimizing the X-ray tube, optimizing the filtering system and then instead of having film on the bottom, we had electronic detectors, charge couple devices that were sensitive to x-rays. And so we designed the first full field digital mammography system for the earlier detection of breast cancer because our images were much higher resolution than the regular film screen images. So there was much more information in there. So, and everybody knows that at that that um, if you got more information, that means you are able to see more, which means you can detect breast cancer, si signs of breast cancer in earlier stages, which translates to saving lives. Not only that, but it opened up the whole new field of computer-aided diagnosis, where, uh, where now since we've got the images digitally, um, I was able to learn from radiologists possible early precursors to breast cancer, which was microcalcification deposits, stellate lesions, circumscribed lesions, asymmetric glandular, and doing my image analysis and creating an expert system, we were able to do a first diagnosis of the images so that uh, the radiologist can then see what we were, uh, uh, what we were concerned on, as, as opposed to uh, they being tired of fatigue Friday, 5 p.m., they want to go home. Mm -hmm. Well, the computer behaved the same way uh, any part of the day. And so we opened up that whole new area of, of studies. And that's what I'm most proud of. Wow. I work as an ICU nurse. So like being in the field of medicine, that's crazy because medicine just 
there are things that work. I mean, obviously it's always striving for innovation and stuff, especially with times like now with, you know, on different circumstances, but they're just those things that are a part of care and diagnosis that are just tried and true. And then sometimes we really just don't think to look outside the box and take something, for example, like what you were working on for an entirely different purpose could be repurposed to, to advance us to where we should be and where we could be in terms of that diagnosis. That's fantastic. I was talking to Julio about this when he and I had talked on a, a couple episodes ago on this podcast. One thing I told him was about was I was moving. I mean, I've moved now. And before I left, my dad and I got together with some of his buddies from work. My dad is a teacher. And I, I hung out with him and his friends because he was going to a new job. And we got to have, you know, just like a, a fun time as like as adults and just get to reminisce on things and talk about it. For you, you know, having some of your friends be, you know, guys who have like maybe two or three master's degrees or PhDs or, you know, obviously some of them being astronauts as well. What was that like for birthdays or like family events where you invite them over? Was it just kind of like any old thing or did you guys get to have those fun conversations with the kids too? We would, uh, we would get together at people's houses and uh, especially the astronauts, you know, you form a tight knit group, especially when you're training, you're training with six other astronauts and you spend almost two years with them. You have the same office, you have a big office with six astronauts in there, seven astronauts there, and we train, we have activities together, we get to know each other's families, and so it becomes like a, uh, a fraternity of sorts, where you're very close to each other, and so when there's a birthday, there's some a get-together, you know, someone would host and we would all go and, uh, and basically enjoy each other's company. And, uh, and then you also invite friends within NASA, your, you know, that are in, the, in our engineers, scientists and stuff like that. And, and it, it was interesting. I mean, it was great because I think um, in my particular case, it was, I was very interested in, in doing so to show my kids that they were, you know, different types of options of careers. And I was always encouraged my kids, hey, ask questions, uh, especially my girls. You know, I, you know, one of our crewmates was a woman, you know, woman astronaut. I said, look, you know, she's a woman, she's an astronaut, just like your dad. Uh, there's no difference. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, you can be whatever you want. And so that's, that's, that's kind of what I, the way I approached it. I approached it from a way of uh, uh, having my friends be seen by my kids as role models, aside from, you know, there's something when um, their father says something and, and then somebody else who's not related to them says the same thing it kind of resonates more uh, than this, when they hear it, that second method as opposed to father lecturing to them. No, exactly. Yeah, they have that real world proof that, hey, you know, dad's just not telling it to me. I mean, here's, here's living proof right here. As we're kind of winding up on stuff and stuff on time here, I, I kind of wanted to ask you this too. So with the basic questions about, you know, actually launching and going up into space, what part of the experience do you think was the, the most anxiety provoking? Was it actually taking off and getting up or was it being up and about or coming back? You know, the, um, the one that created the greatest anxiety is the blast off. Uh, and because you've got millions of gallons of uh, a fuel under you, it's the most dynamic part of the mission uh, because you got to get, tons and tons of metal up into space 
And so you need a lot of thrust. And, and since it's the most dynamic part, that's the most dangerous part. And it only takes eight and a half minutes to get up into space from the time you're in the launch pad to the time it takes off eight and a half minutes and you're up in orbit and, uh, and you turn off the engines and everything. So, so, so that's definitely the one that, that, you know, has the highest pucker factor, if you will, yeah. uh, because, because of the fact of that, you know, anything, anything can, uh, can happen. And though we simulate it, you can't simulate everything. You can't simulate the G-forces coming on your chest as they build up. Um, you can't simulate the, the rattling and the rolling and, uh, and everything that, that happens. So for the first, um, I would say five seconds, when, as the engines light up, uh, you, you kind of you say, oh crap, what did I get myself into mm. kind of thing, right? Yeah. But after those four or five seconds, uh, you've trained so many times, you've done so many uh, simulation, launch simulations, hundreds of them, uh, that your muscle memory takes over. And for me, it was especially stressful because um, I'm the flight engineer, uh, one of the busiest positions. I, and I, got, I have the best seat in the house because mm -hmm. I have the panoramic view because I'm sitting right behind the two pilots. Because each pilot has about five or six monitors, and, uh, and me as a flight engineer, I look at those monitors and I'm looking at the data to make sure there's no tendencies to uh, something going out of tolerance, uh, so that I can give the pilot a heads up if something is going to go, uh, you know, red line or something. Mm -hmm. And then it does. He and I are trained to work it while the other pilot flies nominal. Uh, operations. So, so, you know, those eight and a half minutes, you know, that's where I earned my pay that that that's, that's where was the most dynamic part of it. Now, once you're up there, it's so serene, you don't have any engines on everything turns off, you do have pumps and stuff like that. So it's not quiet, it sounds more like a, a lab at an engineering uh, at school of engineering, you're in an engineering lab, mm -hmm. that's how it's got like pump vacuum all kinds of stuff going on. So you do, there is background noise, but, but it's a lot more calm. And then coming home, um, it's not eight and a half minutes to get back home. It takes about 40, 45 minutes when you fire your jets to let the atmosphere capture you. It's about 45 minutes. So it's more like a terrible uh, Southwest flight <laughs> over the Rockies mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's, it's how it feels. When, uh, so it's very anticlimactic compared to the launch. So I would say the launch is definitely the one where the stakes are higher, where you're concerned that something may go wrong. And if it does, it's pretty catastrophic as we found out with uh, Space Shuttle uh, a Challenger as it was blasting off uh, back in 1987. So, so it's, it's those type of things that worry you. Yeah, no, definitely. So on terms of inspiring your children and stuff, my parents told me that they didn't want me to be a teacher. When Julio told you that he wanted to be one of the first people to go to Mars, how did that make you feel? I think it made me feel proud. You know, the one thing you always say, you feel it far away because you say, oh, you know, the chances of him doing it are kind of slim to none, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like me, the chances of me having become an astronaut was slim to none. Mm -hmm. But then when I saw him 
go off to Purdue and start working on his PhD, you start saying, oh crap, you know, this boy is serious about this. And then he did a Mars expedition simulation mm -hmm. also. Yep. Uh, and, and you look at that and I say, you know, the boy is, you know, he's determined and he's going to make a good go of it. And right now we don't worry about it. Right now I'm more proud than anything because he's a go-getter and he's going after it. But man, if he does ever get named to a mission or, or that, you bet you I'm going to be worried. As I imagine my parents were worried for me when I was on the rocket. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife was worried for me when I was on the rocket. My kids were worried for me uh, when I was on the rocket about to blast off. So, but you know, that's part of the job. And the good thing is I understand him. I understand the drive. I understand that he's willing to take that risk because I was willing to take that risk. So I don't blame him at all. And I encourage him, but you know, you do dread the day when you have to watch him and take off and you cross your fingers and you hope everything's going to work out. No, definitely. I, I mean, I, I don't want to say like, oh, I understand because I don't think I'll ever be able to understand unless my kid decides to be an astronaut and gets named to a mission too. But I'm so glad that you could share all this with me because honestly, it was just I was bummed out that I couldn't be there for the big event at Purdue, but I think this 100% totally makes up for it. And I'm really, truly glad that you spent your time with me this afternoon. One thing before we go here, because I know the Zoom time is going to expire. My grandparents are going to be listening. Can you say something, being the first person on the podcast to say something in Spanish and just say hi to them for me too? What's their name? My grandmother's name is Dolores, and then my willow's name is uh, Fabian. Okay. Hola, Dolores y Fabian. Aquí estoy con su nieto, uh, Doug, que, que me está entrevistando. Está haciendo un buen trabajo. Han de estar muy orgullosos de él porque está haciendo un buen trabajo. Se acaba de egresar de Purdue University y estamos nosotros, la comunidad hispana aquí en Estados Unidos, estamos orgullosos de él porque él va a hacer cosas grandes. Van a ver que va a hacer cosas grandes. Así que felicítenlo, apóyenlo y, uh, y espero que... que Thank you for coming on again. All right, Doug. Well, hey, I'll be keeping track of your career. And as you move up and you get more and more important interviews and stuff like that, don't don't forget about us little people over here. All right. We'll be happy to uh, come on your show. No, of course. <laughs> you always know where we started at. That's for sure. Oh my gosh, man. I love that song. That song is titled Sup by Funk Mammoth. And he'll actually be on the show within the next month or two here. So shout out to you for letting us use that song, Joe. As we wrap things up here, I wanted to take the time to thank you for investing time out of your day to listen to me. And I'm hoping that after things are said and done, you're able to take away a few things from it that you learned. Without sounding cliche, if the experiences and the stories that Jose shared didn't change your mind that you can come from humble beginnings, work hard, and then achieve incredible success afterward, shoot, dude, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> this episode made me reflect a ton on the fact that I've never really taken as much time as I should to just appreciate the journey on the way to achieving my goals. So starting right now, I'm making damn sure that I do. You're here to hear. And honestly, I hope that you guys follow along with me on that one. Again, thank you to Jose for joining us today. 
and for that very special message that he gave to my grandparents. It's opportunities like that in life, guys, where I just take you know pride and enjoyment and being able to give back to those who have helped me. Also, a shout out to everybody who responded uh, to last week's episode with overwhelmingly positive feedback with Brian Rack. He and I, frankly, didn't expect that one to blow up in the way that it did, and we had gotten so many messages from friends and family about how it made them rethink things in a way that they hadn't considered it before. You know, it, it made them reflect on themselves and realize that there were things about themselves that they wanted to change. Like, that was, it was the intention of the episode, but I didn't even know that it would impact people on that kind of a scale with that many responses. So super glad that that was the result. And when I told them about all that stuff, we definitely got excited about it. And we knew that we're definitely going to be having to follow up with another episode. So he and I have decided that we're going to be doing that on next week's episode. So look forward to that for sure. Before I head off and sign off here, I just want to say out loud that if you guys have any ideas, comments, or feedback about the shows, or if you have an idea for a topic for a future show that you think that doesn't get talked about enough or something that you just really want to hear us talk about here, please let us know on social media or on, uh, I think Spotify is actually letting people interact with you know, their, their podcast listeners. So I'll try and find a way to put that on here. I really want to know. I'm not going to sit here and grandstand on a soapbox and say, oh, well, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. I'm not really worried about that stuff. I really want to know what you guys want to listen to and what you want to know. That's what keeps me going. Anything that I can do to get myself out of the box and, you know, getting myself to be more well-rounded, that's what I'm trying to do. So let me know if you guys have questions, comments, or suggestions, or feedback. I'd seriously love to hear it. Until then, though, take care, get her done, and most importantly, don't forget to enjoy yourself on the way. We'll see you next time here on Midday with Doug DeVries. Midday.